Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 304. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Video Vixens. Uh, that's the, I'm not going to lie, that name's a bit of a misnomer. We're mainly talking about women and the kind of the complicated relationship they have with hip-hop. This is another thematic one of our lectures. Um, not talking too much about chronology. I'm going to early to about eh, 2005-ish. Um, I'm sure whenever we discuss in class, you will be able to give me much more recent examples of these phenomenon, you know, more contemporary, but I, I, I feel pretty steadfast in saying this is probably still an issue, so if you go over one to the introduction, sorry, let me give you a second to open up the PowerPoint. So just go over to introduction, uh, MC is, the M is misogyny, does hip-hop hate women? Um... I'm going to be blunt right now. Rap music and women have a very complicated relationship. There have always been female MCs here and there, uh, but the genre itself has remained primarily a boys club. We talked about that earlier in the semester, actually, when we were introducing it, how um, you know rap music tends to be a very black male-dominated field, uh, particularly a male-dominated field. You have more white rappers than you have female rappers in general. And also, rap music, rap lyrics in several genres of rap music, like you know, all the subgenres of rap music, uh, they've often been accused of being misogynistic for several reasons. I'm going to be using the term misogyny a lot. Uh, misogyny. If you're not familiar with misogyny, look it up. As soon as you look it up, you'll understand. Oh yeah, misogyny. Uh, this is also further complicated by rap music videos, uh, which often portray women, particularly black women, as sexual objects pretty much devoid of agency or self-thought. And when I say agency, I mean the ability to make one's own decisions, the one to really have a, uh, the ability to really have a say in stuff. And it's not just that they're viewed as, you know, objects in the videos, oftentimes they're treated as objects outside the videos. Um, this idea, I mean, you see that whenever you read in Hip Hop Wars, talking about there's there's bees and hoes, you know, in real life. You know, we're just keeping it real. Uh, that, that's one of the assessments that is often, you know, thrown about is that, you know, the women are treated like such in the videos because there are women like that in real life. Now, I will admit that there have been some versions of this idea, but by and large, I think I'm on fair ground when I say that hip hop has remained a boys club. Uh, pretty much for hip-hop's history, it's remained very male, very masculine, and not the greatest towards women. Now, before we go on, I, I must have to state strongly that misogyny was not created by rap music. Um, likewise, the degradation of black women has a lengthy history in the United States, uh, sexual and otherwise. I mean, there's sexual degradation. There's other degradation of women just in general, particularly black women. Uh, in the United States, uh, this is, I am not saying that rap music invents misogyny towards black women. I'm not saying it's the worst example of misogyny towards black women. I'm just saying it's definitely an example. But considering how rap music has become the dominant expression for a lot of black culture, particularly youth culture, it has been for several decades, it's telling oftentimes how it really uh, overlooks the role of women or just doesn't really do much for women. Uh, that's what we're going to be talking about. In today's, today's lecture, I'll be talking about female rappers, male rappers who use women as props, and the women who are viewed as such. So, mainly talking about female MCs, but also how like male rappers use women, and also a little bit about the music videos. Um, I will say, kind of a 
if you notice, like uh, the, the videos that I have uh, listed today and a lot of the images I, I show, they're not going to be overly sexual. Um, if you if you want to find examples of you know rap videos which are uh, degrading to women or objectify women, uh, there's a lot you can find. Uh, you don't need my help finding them. They they definitely exist. So. Uh, most of the videos I have, though, are, are actually of women rappers and kind of subvert some of these um, expectations. In fact, I think all of these are, all the videos are, are by or for women. Yeah, yeah, it's all women, uh, including an interview with, uh, well, you'll see when we get there. Okay. So, ladies in the old school. Uh, there are definitely girls and women involved in the earliest crews of hip-hop. I mean, if you look at something like the early, early, we're talking 1970s uh, rap crews, you do have some female MCs. You do have some ladies uh, some girls who are involved with this. Uh, but their su success and commercial viability is very problematic. Um, a lot of these female MCs early on are not the ones getting signed to the early record deals. Like, we're talking, like, Rapper's Delight time period. Um, once, the, you know, once Rapper's Delight comes out and, you know, the other other rap crews start getting signed, it pretty much becomes seen as a, as a boys' club. Uh, the first female rapper to really get notoriety, not a lot of commercial success, but the first one to really get notoriety is Roxanne Shante. If you go over one side, you'll see her. Uh, she is exceptionally young when all this comes out. She's about 15, 16 years old. Uh, basically, there's a rap group called UTFO. Uh, they're a New York-based rap crew. They're not very big by any stretch of the imagination. Um, one of their singles, it has a B-side called Roxanne Roxanne, which is about a girl who refuses their advances. Basically, it's they're kind of calling out this girl for, I guess, being a tease, or, you know, they, they, want, they really want to, you know, holler at this girl, but uh, she, she's just not having it. She's just not having it. And uh, Roxanne Shantae's real name is Loita Shantae Gooden. Uh, she's 15 years old from Queens. Uh, she kind of, this is where rap chronology gets really hazy. <laughs> uh, that's one thing I can say after researching early rap music is that... Uh, when things happen is, is very hazy. There's a lot of, like, legend and stories that are told. And the when things happen, it's kind of squeaky. But at some point, she she kind of changes her name from Lolita to the uh, her rap moniker. She doesn't change her name, like, government-wise. But the name she goes by, uh, she goes from Lolita to Roxanne. Uh, either right before or right after hearing this song. Like I said, it gets hazy. Um, there's evidence of both sides of this. Uh, she maintains that it was beforehand, but there's other things that state maybe she had been a little bit uh, after hearing the song Roxanne, Roxanne. Uh, what does happen is she records a response to Roxanne, Roxanne called Roxanne's Revenge, uh, which she responds to the complaints of UTFO by saying they are whack and they're not what they claimed. And you can you can uh, you can YouTube this one; it exists. Uh, you're going to find a video of her pretty much singing in front of a camp, rapping in front of a camcorder, uh, pretty much saying how like you know the, it, it's very much done in good fun, just kind of like a you know kind of a kidding the guys back, like hey you know you tried to harm me but you're whack and you smell bad and you're not what you say you are that sort of thing. Very much done in good uh, good fun. And so began the Roxanne Wars of the mid-'80s. Uh, pretty much every New York crew puts out a response to Roxanne. Uh, there's, like, another girl rapper who calls herself the real Roxanne, as opposed to Roxanne Chante, who's the fake Roxanne. There's other Roxanne relations. It's like Roxanne's brother responds, Roxanne's sister responds. Um, even though UTFO was not talking about a particular girl by any sense of the imagination, you know, Roxanne, Roxanne was just a generic girl, 
Um, this really gets pretty big, pretty popular. And, um, you know, it, it is telling that female rappers are already seen kind of as objects and the levels of agency are fairly low, but it's also kind of cashing on a fad. Um, like I said, this is the mid-80s, like 85, 86. This doesn't really go too far out of New York. Uh, the first female rapper to get a solo album, if you go over one slide, that would be MC Light. Uh, she is also from New York. She is also from New York. I believe she was born in England, but then she moved to New York fairly young. Uh, she's actually comes out exceptionally young. Her album, Light as a Rock, comes out in 1998 when she is 18 years old. Um, so she is incredibly young. It's also interesting on the album cover that uh, it, it's kind of hard to tell which one is her because there's three guys on there and the, the name MC Light is sort of generic. It doesn't necessarily imply a woman or not. But she's definitely a woman. She's definitely a, a lady rapper. Um, it is critically acclaimed. Uh, you know, there's a lot of critics who think, hey, this is something neat from the rap world. You know, maybe more female rappers are going to come out. You know, she is a lady rapper. This is the first solo um, lady rapper to get an album. Critically acclaimed doesn't really do much in terms of sales. Uh, her content is actually quite introspective. There's songs about drug addiction, also about the treatment of women. Uh, very much in the vein of like late 80s, early 90s, I call it positive rap or happy rap. Uh, we didn't talk about that too much in this class, but uh, groups like Kid and Play, um, th this sort of kind of mindset is kind of what it's put into. It uh, doesn't translate to sales. Uh, late, early, early 90s are an interesting time for rap music. Um, pretty much what is popular before gangster rap comes in is a very positive, uh, very colorful uh, version of rap music that gangster music is not. Uh, her second album, Eyes on This, in 1989, did better in sales, but she kept this very defiant persona. Uh, she is feminine, but she's also like defiant and aggressive in her tone. She's a lady, but she's not a shrinking violet. She's like, look, I'm a woman. I have something to say. You're not just going to trample all over me. You know, you're going to listen to me. I'm a strong woman. I'm an empower woman. Uh, she follows this up with more albums in the 90s. Uh, she had respectable sales, but she was never like a really big-time smash star. She is respected within the rap world. A lot of female rappers uh, really respect her. Uh, there are a lot of a lot of influence, but not a lot of sales, if that makes sense. Uh, an artist who comes shortly after MC Light is Queen Latifah. Uh, Queen Latifah, see there, go over one slide. Uh, she's also from New York, which is unsurprising for this time in rap music. Uh, she's similarly very young when this comes out. I want to say she's like 18, 19 when this comes out, whenever uh, her first album, All Hail the Queen, which you will see right there. Uh, very strong version of black womanhood. When, when I say strong, like a lot of strength, um, empowerment, uh, very much kind of going against a lot of misogyny and saying, look, I'm this empowered black woman. I am strong. I'm an equal partner. I'm not going to be subject to misogyny of men, black or otherwise. Uh, her, her, her debut album of All Hail the Queen has a song Ladies First, which is a duet with Money Love, who's another lady rapper who's signed with her. Uh, Money Love doesn't really do too much, though. Uh, Queen Latifah is much better known. Uh, basically, the song Ladies First talks about all the ways which she should be given respect. Uh, this has iterated her later songs. Uh, the first vi music video you have is U-N-I-T-Y, Unity. Uh, basically, it has the... The repeated verse of, don't call me a B, don't call me a B. Um, basically, Queen Latifah is showing herself as an equal partner. 
you know, she is an equal, not even just a partner, she is an equal human being. She doesn't need to be partnered to a man. She is a woman, she is strong, she is singular. Um, shows herself as a sexual being, but not a sexual object. That is, that is a real thin line we're going to be talking about quite a bit. What's the line between, you know, a sexual being versus a sexual object? Queen Latifah is showing, like, yes, I like sex. I, I, I have sexual desires. I want to have, you know, good sex with a guy who loves and cares for me. You know, I, I want to have sex with you, and if you treat me right, I will have very good sex with you, but you can't treat me like an object. Does that make sense? Like, willing to have sex, but not just only available for sex. She is sexual, but not only sexual. It, words get hard when we talk about this sort of stuff, just trying to describe exactly what I mean. But this is also reflected in her demeanor and appearance, uh, which is not overly sexualized or low-cut. Uh, compare her to some of the later, you know, lady rappers who come out. Uh, Queen Latifah is very much this very defiant, you know, strong version of womanhood, but definitely, definitely a woman. Like, this is not, like, androgynous or anything. She is clearly a woman, but it's not like I'm an over-sexualized woman, even though I am a sexual being. She's not a prude. She's definitely not a prude. But it's an appearance that denotes, you know, pride in being both black and a woman. I mean, the fact that her moniker is queen. You know, this is a powerful, strong, regal personality. And she becomes known for her acting fairly early on. Uh, pretty much after her first album or two, uh, she becomes primarily for an actor. But she does put out songs here and there. And you'll see in UNITY kind of this, you know, this is the Queen Latifah we're talking about here. Uh, the first really big girl group that comes out of this, and actually they are arguably the most successful rapping girl group, is Salt and Peppa. And I should mention, Queen Latifah comes out in like 1989, 1990. Uh, Salt and Pepper, they're a tad older than Queen Latifah and MC Light. Um, they're a bit more established. I want to say they're about five, six years older than Queen Latifah and MC Light. Uh, they also broke out a little bit later. Uh, MC Light and Queen Latifah kind of come first. Um, even though they've been working a little bit longer than Queen Latifah and MC Light, they really come into like precedence after them. Uh, they're also a bit more sexual in their attire than uh, earlier rappers, uh, earlier female rappers, I should say. Uh, nothing over the top, but they're a bit more upfront about it. Like the sex appeal of Salt and Pepper is something that's really pushed a little bit. Ah. <laughs> Their song was Push It. I just got that. Um, also, I should mention the group is a trio. Uh, there's Salt, there's Pepper, then there's their DJ, Spinderella. Uh, they first broke through with their uh, third album, which was 1990's Black Magic. Sorry, Black's Magic. And bring with the song Let's Talk About Sex. You can go there. The video for Let's Talk About Sex is right there. Um, yeah, yes, Push It was a moderate hit in 1987. It doesn't really come into more prominence until after Let's Talk About Sex comes out. Uh, Let's Talk About Sex is seen as an enlightening, frank, and sex-positive song. Um, you know, in the song, the group says that, hey, you know, be aware, sex can lead to STDs, um, you know, encourages women to be wise about their sexuality. Very sex-positive in a way that other stuff... You know, there's a lot of gender empowerment, sexual empowerment, not necessarily, like pornography or anything. We'll talk about some of these which get a bit more pornographic later on. But this is more just like, hey, you know, be smart about sex. Whoops, sorry. Squeaky chair. Um, you know, have good sex. Make sure it's, you know, enjoyable for, for you as a lady. You know, it's not just about his needs or his desires, that sort of thing. 
this is followed up by their 1993 album, Very Necessary, which includes songs like Shoop and What a Man. And once again, it shows that the group, they're women who are knowledgeable about sex and appreciative of getting respect. It's like a, uh, pretty much if I were to kind of sum up their message quickly, it's like, if you treat me good as a woman, I'll treat you good as a man. Uh, it's a fairly positive message. I mean, if you look at something like What a Man, uh, I don't have the music video for that, but you can look it up. You know, basically it's saying, you know, what makes, a, what makes this guy a very good man? It's because he treats me very well. He doesn't mess around with other women. And because of that, I'm going to treat him very well sexually. And it's more than just sex. It's like, you know, it's, it's a love thing. It's, it's, it's a fairly positive message. Uh, Very Necessary is a big hit. Uh, it goes platinum several times over. Uh, they're the first rap girl group to win Grammys. So they're the first female rapping group to get Grammys. Uh, like I said, they're arguably the most successful ladies uh, rap group ever because there's not a ton of them that come later. Uh, groups. There's plenty of lady rappers, but just like groups. There's not too many of them that come later. However, this was met with the majority of rap music. If you go for one slide... Uh, the rap music contemporary to them is quite male and not quite as positive towards women's, like, personalities and being. Uh, don't get me wrong. They, they liked women. Uh, they loved women's bodies. They loved having sexy women in their music videos. But when mu- women appeared in rap songs, particularly rap videos, uh, it was generally as objects, not as fully realized individuals. Um, it's almost as though they were caricatures of the f- full humans they actually were. Uh, an example of this, Chiefs, um, take your pick, here too from 1992. Uh, the one that really springs to mind is Rump Shaker by Direct Effects. Uh, sorry, Rex and Effect. By Rex and Effect, you can see them on the right. Um, the music video actually even gets banned on BET for a while because it shows so many women in bikinis. Um, the song itself is basically about shaking your rump. Um, that's pretty obvious what that's about. Uh, the music video does show, you know, a lot of women on the beach. Uh, the, the group is actually from Virginia Beach. Uh, if you ever heard of Pharrell Williams, this is actually where he gets his start, weirdly enough, is with uh, Rump Shaker. He's not in the music video, but he writes the rap for one of the people, for Teddy Riley. Uh, I, I'd say this is probably the best contemporary to them, because if you watch the Rump Shaker video, which I don't have up there, but eh, it exists, it is very much like, you know, there are all these women here. It's mainly about bikinis and being on the beach. It's definitely sexual. It's definitely talking about sex, but the women are kind of shown as objects. Another one like this is uh, Baby Got Back by Sir Mix-A-Lot. You know that song. You can see right him there on the top left. Um, it's also an ode to how much he likes butts. Um, it's another song about butts. Uh, it opens with two white girls talking about how a girl's butt is so big. And the only reason that rap guys like her is because she's, quote, a total prostitute. And so you're already seeing right here this idea that, you know, rap guys are going to be very sexual towards women, uh, only if they're sexually available, sexually promiscuous. It's, it's definitely pressed here. And despite the efforts of these girl groups, it appears that rap music would be pretty much a boys club where women would be seen as less than three-dimensional. I mean, yes, these girl groups are, and these girl artists are getting a lot of respect, and they're getting some sales, and they're getting Grammys, but things like Baby Got Back is still way more popular. It makes, it makes a, lot, a lot more money. And also, it should be noted that the women who appear in these music videos are typically models who are paid for their appearance in the music video, and then we can get into the whole issue of modeling, and how, like, you know, being a model is pretty much solely about your appearance, and then we get into standards of beauty, and things like that, and the fact that that's you literally make your living off the way you appear, not who you necessarily are. Uh, 
And it should, men- it should be mentioned that rock music videos in the 80s were also known for being less than great towards women as well. For instance, if you look at the bottom right, uh, that's a shot from David Lee Ross' uh, Just a Gigolo video. Uh, you can see lots of lots of ladies, uh, and I guess that's like underwear or something. Um, I mean, if I'm really honest, not being great towards women has been around since forever. And it's different, though, because rap music, I would say, is trying to promote black strength. And, you know, one way that they try to show black strength is dominance over women, particularly black women. And feel free to talk about that when we're in class, this idea of... You know, is the way to show strength dominance over somebody else? Is there another way you can show strength? Uh, then we get into the mid-90s. I'm really focusing on two artists, Missy Elliott and Lauren Hill. That's not all I'm talking about, but I think these are probably two of the most uh, impactful kind of subversions and uh, very interesting what they bring to the whole rap genre as, as women. Go over one slide. I do have to mention TLC briefly before this. Um, are they a rap group? No, not really. Uh, Lisa Lesai Lopez definitely was a rapper, but T-Boz and Chili really weren't rappers. Uh, one was like more gospel, the other was more R&B. Uh, they're a hybrid of R&B and other genres, but they definitely include rap music. What does need to be say about them is that they continue the um, sex-positive message of Salt and Peppa and the like. Uh, for instance, you can see there's Lisa Lefty Lopez with her famous condom over her eye, uh, over her glasses. Um, that was her shtick for years, uh, pretty much in a lot of her public appearances. She wore a condom over one of her eyes, usually her left eye, but sometimes it was her right eye. Uh, it was supposed to be a conversation piece to be like, hey, you know, use condoms, practice safe, safe sex, that sort of thing. Uh, the group was presented as sexual and feminine, but not like, they were sexual beings, but not sexual objects. The words really fail me here, but there's a difference between, like, a woman who's in a music video as an object versus a woman who has a sense of agency and empowerment over her body. Now, what that line is, talk about that in class, because that gets kind of complicated. But who I do want to focus upon is two women who got big in hip-hop in the mid-90s, Lauren Hill and Missy Elliott. Now, if you go over one slide, you will see Lauren Hill, actually in Sister Act 2, uh, Lauren Hill is originally from New Jersey, uh, but she's definitely from the New York metro area. Uh, she got involved in gospel music and the like very early, sings in her church choir. Uh, religion's a very big deal for Lauren Hill, like super big deal for Lauren Hill, very much a part of who she is. Uh, in high school, she got asked by a friend, well, a guy not by the name of Prez Michael, to join his rap crew. Um, she did, and they later got joined by his cousin, Wycliffe John. Uh, she started as a singer, but learned to rap as time went on. She said she mainly listened to like male rappers. That's kind of who she emulated her flow on. She also begins acting as well, and actually does pretty well as an actor. Uh, for instance, uh, when she's in Sister Act 2, which she's known... I mean, if you watch Sister Act 2, I don't know why you would have. That's way before you were born. Uh, in Sister Act 2, she plays one of the students. She's actually still in high school when this comes out. She had done some acting before, but this is definitely her biggest role. Uh, she does a lot of singing in it. She's, she has a beautiful voice, and like this movie really demonstrates, wow, this, you know, this 17, 18-year-old can really sing. So in 1994, uh, she, you know, in 1993, she graduates high school, uh, starts going to college a little bit. If you go over one slide, you will see basically uh, the group that she's in with Prez and uh, Wyclef Jean renames themselves the Fugees. Uh, the Fugees is a variation of the term refugee, 
uh, refugee. Uh, basically, it's playing off of Michael and um, Braz and Wyclef Jean's Caribbean heritage. Uh, they have Caribbean heritage in them. They're you know theoretically immigrants. I think they're second generation immigrants to the United States. And so that's what the Fugees are really playing off of. It's this idea that you know we're we're mixing hip hop with like Caribbean music, sort of. Uh, the first album doesn't do too well. Their second album uh, came out in 1996. It was called The Score. It does a lot better. It does a lot, a lot better. Uh, for instance, she does a version of the old 70s song, Killing Me Softly. That's a massive hit. But she's singing. She's not really rapping. Uh, she keeps acting in the midst of all this. Uh, by the time you get to, like, 1997, uh, the Fugees are kind of doing solo projects. Uh, there's some tension in the group. Uh, she decides to make her own solo project as well. And I should mention, she is very young. She's about 20, 21 years old during all this. Uh, she is super young. She is super young while all this is going on. I cannot iterate how young she is. Now, the resulting album, if you go over one slide, is called The Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Uh, it is a tremendous success. I cannot iterate how big of a success this is. Uh, by any reckoning, this is a major hit for Lauren Hill, both critically and commercially. Uh, Hill is considered to be, by some rat critics, to be the greatest female MC ever, uh, if not the greatest MC ever. I, I've seen some, you know, rap critics who have her to the top of all MCs, uh, let alone female MCs. And the album itself is often hailed as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, albums of all time. And I should iterate. This is her first album at 21, and she never really put out another album. The album talks a lot about a lot of different issues, both personal and universal. Uh, it talks about some of her personal life. Uh, she has a child, for instance, and the song To Zion talks about how she you know, was told by everybody to abort this child, but she decided to have the child, and you know, it's made her life that much better. Very personal songs. Uh, you will see, for instance, if you go, you can click on uh, Doo-Wop, That Thing. Which is, it's a kind of a combination between um, rap music and R&B music. Remember, she starts out as an R&B singer, but she raps as well. Basically, you know, kind of warning girls, hey, watch out, guys might not have your best interest in mind. It uh, talks a lot about being a woman, talks a lot about, you know, um, sexuality, being a you know, parent, abortion, um, hosts of other issues, being black, you know, this idea that, you know, she felt lied to, a um, lot of little skits in there of a, you know, a teacher talking to their class about what is love. It's a, a massive critical and commercial hit. I cannot iterate that enough. Uh, wins all the Grammys. Like, if there's a Grammy that year, she won it. This is the biggest album possibly ever. Uh, but it might have been too much too soon. Uh, she was never very comfortable with all the fame. It was almost as though her first album had set a standard too impossibly high to live up to. Uh, she became more and more withdrawn, more spiritual, pretty much dropped off the face of the earth when, in terms of the music business when she was at her most hot, when, whenever she was like at her most popular. And it didn't really help that whenever she did perform live, it was often erratic and divisive. Uh, she only has one studio album, which is The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill. She did put out a 2002 live album, which was divisive to say the least. Um, very sporadic when she performed. Uh, sometimes whenever she performed, she wouldn't show up for like a couple hours, only play one song and then leave. Never comfortable with all the fame. Um, there, there might be an element of basically, you know, she's 21 years old, puts out this album. It, it gets 
I don't want to say it's too much success, but I'm not going to not say it's too much success. It's basically how could she live up to this. Uh, meanwhile, you have Missy Elliott. If you go over one side, you'll see Missy Elliott with Timbaland and Aaliyah. Uh, Missy Elliott comes from Virginia. She's another Virginia rapper. Uh, she has a young friendship with uh, Timothy Timbaland Mosley. Uh, Timbaland, we mentioned when we talked about country rap for his work with Bubba Sparks. Uh, the person who kind of puts him on the map, though, is Missy Elliott. Uh, their relationship is a source of collaborations, and honestly, it's the reason why they both gain notoriety. Uh, Missy Elliott gains a lot of attention for her production with Timbaland. Timbaland gets a lot of production for his, uh, sorry, attention for his production with Missy Elliott. The early 90s, though, has Mel Elliott working mainly as part of a group, not really ba uh, breaking through. She's definitely a working rapper, but she's not a very well-known rapper. Like, she's putting out stuff, a lot of collaborations, a lot of guest verses, um, really does a lot of songwriting, a lot of ghostwriting. Uh, she ghostwrites for a lot of other rappers. She does a lot of songwriting, uh, particularly for Aaliyah. She's not a ghostwriter for Aaliyah. She's a straight-up, like, songwriter for Aaliyah. Um, actually, Timbaland and Missy Elliott do a lot of work with uh, Aaliyah for her 1996 album, One in a Million. I should mention very briefly Aaliyah, because if you want to talk about, uh, you know, treatment of black women, uh, what happens to Aaliyah is high on that list. I don't have any slides about this, but let me give you briefly the story of Aaliyah. Um, when Aaliyah was very young, like super young, she was discovered, quote unquote, by one Robert Kelly, a.k.a. R. Kelly. And then around 1997 or so, when she was 13, they got married. Uh, you can Google some very awkward interviews between the two of them whenever they're like, oh, we're just best friends. Oh, she's like my sister, but it's clear there's something going on, and it's really creepy because R. Kelly's in his 30s, and Aaliyah's like 13, 14, and then they get married in secret, but then it gets annulled because R. Kelly claims he didn't know that she was not 18, but come on, he had to know she was 13. And there's always been rumors it's because she got pregnant, and then like her parents like made her get married. Anyway, this is after Aaliyah kind of broken away from R. Kelly, kind of broken away from R. Kelly. She's still super young. She's like 18. Uh, let's see, in 1996, she would be, oh God, she'd be like 17, 16 years old. So right after she got out of the R. Kelly stuff, that's when she starts working with Timbaland and Missy Elliott. Uh, ultimately, Aaliyah does die at age like 18 or 21 or so. Um, no, she's 21 uh, whenever she dies. She's in a plane crash in 2001. So that's Aaliyah for you. Uh, yeah, we've known a lot about R. Kelly over the years. The fact that R. Kelly only recently kind of got officially canceled or like, you know, legal ramifications for what he's done. It's been well over 20 years that R. Kelly's deviance, to put it politely, with very underage girls um, was kind of known to the general public. But back to Missy Elliott. Sorry, that's my little diatribe about Aaliyah, which if you haven't heard about Aaliyah, you learn about Aaliyah. Um, ultimately, uh, Missy Elliott does get a chance to kind of make her own record imprint with Elektra Records. In 1997, go over one slide, you'll see she releases her first album, Supa Dupa Fly, uh, which has the lead single of The Rain. Uh, I have The Rain on Moodle. I would highly suggest you click and watch it. Uh, the, the, the music video for The Rain is definitely a subversion of the video vixen stereotype as well as beauty standards. Uh, it's a very interesting and subversive music video. I, I should mention that 
Missy Elliott is very well known for being an experimental rapper, um, helped a lot by Timbaland, who makes some of his like most ludicrous beats by for uh, for Missy Elliott. Uh, seriously, Timbaland can't help but go just crazy with some of his beats. Uh, the instrumentation is stuff you've never heard before. Like later albums, she uses like the sitar. Well, Timbaland uses the sitar and the Bengala style, so it's like India India sounding. It's interesting, interesting. But in the rain, it's very interesting that, for instance, like Missy Elliott, who's a bit thicker than most, um, you know, she's thicker, uh, she wears a fat suit for the video. She wears a fat suit for the video, uh, which is pretty much a shiny shoot fisheye lens wrap video, but like she's wearing a, a fat suit that looks like a garbage bag. So it's like she's already, you know, heavier than most women who are in, you know, rap music videos, but now she's exaggerating that. You know, it's. Um, she does have some backup dancers, but they're not really done for sexual purposes. They're more like just straight-up dancers. Uh, not really, like, overplaying the, like, the vixen part of it, just, like, the sexual object part of it. It's just like, nah, I got some dancers. And, you know, I'm a woman, but, uh, you know, I know I'm a thicker woman, but I have on this fat suit, which looks like a garbage bag, just kind of subvert the expectations of, you know, what it means to be a woman, especially in a rap video. Uh, this is similarly copied by her 2000... One album, uh, Miss E, So Addictive, uh, which includes songs like One Minute Man. Uh, one Minute Man, basically, in the song, Elliot is chiding her lover not to be a one-minute man in terms of sex. If you don't understand that, ask your... Well, don't ask your parents, but don't ask me. Uh, we'll figure that one out. Uh, but she's kind of reiterating this idea that she's a female rapper, she's sexual, but she's not a sexual object. I, I think that's one thing you see quite a bit with these female rappers, is that they, you know, they talk about, yeah, I I'm sexual, I like sex, but I'm not just an object. I really can't say enough good things about Missy Elliott. Uh, her catalog isn't just sexual stuff. I should narrate that. Uh, pretty interesting, dynamic music stuff. Um, she actually drops out of the music business uh, for quite a while, for almost 15 years. Well, for, after she gets diagnosed with Graves' disease, uh, which is an autoimmune disease. It's a, a kind of a, a crippling, in a sense. It gives you a lot of pain. Graves' disease does. Uh, she's been doing stuff more lately, but pretty much from 05 to 2019, she pretty much disappeared. If you go over one slide, you'll see Missy Elliott. Eh, I don't know exactly when this picture is, but it's definitely between 2002 to 2005. Uh, she lost a little bit of weight. Um, more than a little bit. She lost a lot of weight in 2002, so it kind of changed her demeanor. Ah, misdemeanor. Huh, I just get that. Uh, between Elliot and Hill, it seemed that maybe there was a sustained role for female rappers. Uh, they could rap about stuff without just being sexual objects. Like, they could even rap about sex. And they could also get sales and critical acclaim. I mean, to be fair, nobody has been as critically acclaimed as Lauryn Hill was for her first album. Like, nobody. Like, regardless of genre, regardless of male-female rapper, nobody has ever been as critically acclaimed as Lauryn Hill was for that first album. Uh, but Missy Elliott comes pretty close in terms of, like, having hip-hop bona fides, in terms of sales and acclaim, as well as street credibility. Like, there's a lot of rappers who work with uh, Missy Elliott during this time period who, you know, she's very well-respected for what she does by pretty much everybody. But there was also Little Kim during this time period. Uh, Little Kim starts out, she's associated with Biggie Smalls. Uh, she's part of the Junior Mafia. Uh, she is very short, I should say. Uh, the, the Lil and Little Kim is not just an exaggeration. She's about, I've heard, 4'11", 5'1". She's about 5'0", quite short. Uh, she gets a little notoriety uh, because this is who Biggie Smalls uh, cheated on his wife with. Uh, he was married to Faith Evans, and then he started messing around with Little Kim. Uh, she does rap some 
Um, you know, her, her first album, Hardcore, comes out in 96 while Biggie Smalls is still alive. Uh, doesn't do too, too much. Doesn't do too, too much. Uh, but it, it kind of got elevated after um, B, uh, Notorious B.I.G.'s death. Kind of like uh, how it happened to um, Puffy. Uh, greatly elevated by his death. Uh, her kind of shtick was she was known to outfilth the male rappers. That's the only way I can describe it. Like, she she talks a lot about sex, which, I mean, granted, talking about sex was you know not unheard of for female rappers, but she's way more graphic. That's the only way I can talk about it. It's, like, graphic about sex. And she has a lot more going on with her appearance. If you ever one slide, this is one of the cleaner pictures I could find of uh, Little Kim's album covers. Uh, she dresses extra provocatively, uh, raps a lot about sex and violence, as though she's like a mafia queen who was dominant over men and her sexuality. Uh, the only outside comparison I could think about this, and this is, this is a deep cut, this is a deep cut, is the character of White Queen from the X-Men. Uh, she's a villain. She is a villain in the X-Men comics, but she's like shown to be like very sexual. Like she dresses in like pretty much just underwear. Now, granted, I know these are like pervy comic guys writing it, but like she dresses pretty much in just underwear. But it's like she's a villain. She has power over men. Her her, her desirability towards men, uh, her desire men's desirability. The way that men think she's hot is a source of power, if that makes sense. Like, basically, because she's so desirable to men, that's a source of power she has over men. I'd say that's kind of like little Kim's shtick. Now, here's the question, and this is something I want you all to talk about in class or in your discussions for the quiz. Um, if you have agency over your body, is that objectification? Like, there's no doubting that little Kim presented herself as a sexual object, but perhaps... Also, by being sexual in her raps, at what points does image overtake it all? Does that make sense? Like, she is theoretically a sexual being. You know, her rap, she talks about how, like, she's going to give you sex so good that very graphic things happen. Much more graphic than, like, any of the other female rappers that really talked about. And also her appearance. You know, she is dressing extra provocatively. Could it theoretically be seen as a sense of power? Well, that's something we need to really think about. Especially when we talk about the career of the video vixens. Now, if you go over one slide, you will see a picture of the most famous video vixen, possibly, possibly the most famous video vixen, I'd argue she is, is Karen Steffens. Um, you might say nowadays Amber Rose might be a bit more famous than Karen Steffen was. I wouldn't, I probably wouldn't argue with you about that one. Uh, she is representative of basically the. The women who appear in rap videos who don't really have a sense of agency, who pretty much just exist to be objects of desirability to show the prowess or the coolness of the rapper. As I mentioned, these are primarily models, and we could talk about modeling as how that's a very, I don't want to say problematic occupation, but it definitely has a lot of these dynamics because it is so appearance-based. Now, Karine Steffens, uh, the last video I have is an interview with her. Uh, watch it after I talk about her. It's, it's actually pretty interesting, uh, basically how she talks about her life and you know what she expects from being in a music video, and also just her entire life about it. Uh, she starts out as a late teenager, early 20-year-old, involved with a rapper by the name of Cool G Rap. Uh, cool G Rap's kind of an older school guy. Uh, they do not have a good relationship by any accounts. It's a very bad relationship. Ultimately, she kind of leaves him. Uh, however, once she leaves, she's like, oh, I need to find a job. You know, I didn't really go get any training or anything. 
So she starts talking to his friends in the industry, and they're like, hey, you're pretty attractive. Um, let's do some music videos. You can show up and become like one of these video girls, video vixen, if you will. Uh, for instance, you can see right there, uh, that is her first music video. It's 1999's Jay-Z's Hey Poppy. Um, she does a lot more after this. She does a ton of music videos after this, uh, often featured in music videos. She's probably most featured in the mystical music video for Danger, in which she is pretty much the main uh, lady in that video. But she also starts messing around a lot with other rappers. Like, a lot with various rappers, various people in the entertainment business. Um, she claims it was because of abuse whenever she was younger, that, and also by Cool G Rap, uh, that she allowed herself to be used in such a manner, uh, getting paid for sex and things like that. Uh, in 2005, she publishes her first book, uh, Confessions of a Video Vixen, in which she told stories about pretty much everybody she slept with, as well as their sexual proclivities. Uh, she pretty much kissed and told in this book. And I was working in a library around right the time this came out, and I think I told one of y'all's classes, this was more popular than Harry Potter, which, that's impressive. I mean, this is when the new Harry Potter books were still coming out, and yet, yeah, Confessions of a Video Vixen, that beat everything. Everybody wanted that book. Uh, she uses pseudonyms for some of the artists, not all of them. She she names a lot of names in this book. She uses pseudonyms for some of them, and there's actually a little cottage industry for a while trying to figure out who, who exactly she's talking about. A uh, particular one guy in particular who she calls, like, Daddy, who is, like, apparently really good to her, and he's, like, she's, like, he's a really, really big rapper who's got, like, a family, so I can't say who it is, and everybody's, like, oh, my God, is this a big name or this other big name? Uh, she later claims in her second book, yeah, she... She makes a second book where she names him as Method Man. And then everybody got disappointed because they thought it was a much bigger name. But there you go. And then Method Man denied it. And so go figure for that. Uh, she, Although she does stop appearing in music videos, she's made a pretty good career about talking about these music videos and also doing some other publishing about sex. Uh, she becomes like an editor for like a series of books about like sexual stories like, I guess, I don't even know what to call it. It's not quite pornography, I don't guess, but it's like like essays about like having sex or sex stories. Uh, the, urban, the urban erotic genre is another thing I learned out a lot when I was in the library, like the Zane books and stuff, also super popular. But it gets to the question as well, like, what's the line about all this? Like, you know, is it empowerment? You know, is, is getting paid what makes it empowerment? But is it still kind of like theoretically not the best for you? And this is when we have to talk about the tip, deal, the tip drill controversy. Go over one side, you will see tip drill, which I'm going to end with. Because this is one of the most interesting controversies ever to come out of this. And um, it's a song. Uh, actually, it's technically a remix that was released in 2004. Uh, the video, Well, the song was released in 2003. The video comes out in 2004 uh, by a rapper named Nelly, who you may or may not be familiar with. We're going to have to talk about Nelly and why this was seen as so out of character for him. And sheesh. Even in my notes right now, I have like sheesh with like 20 E's because this is a fascinating story about what goes on here. And I think kind of really is emblematic of kind of the, the male, the rap, the, you know, the male rapper view of women and all this and how it gets really complicated. So uh, Cornell, Nelly Hayes, uh, everybody calls him Nelly. He is uh, one of, if not the first, rappers from the Midwest, uh, from St. Louis. He's not quite country rap, I wouldn't say, 
Although his first album and single was entitled Country Grammar, uh, go figure, uh, he really emphasized his roots, uh, particularly with his dialect. He's talking about urban living in St. Louis. However, he, his dialect, he's very much emphasizing different words, um, very strong dialect. You know, her, uh, the way he pronounces his words are quite different than other rappers. Uh, songs like Midwest Swing, for instance, uh, really play up his countryside. I still say he's coming more for an urban environment, but if you want to fight me and say he's a country rapper, I, I might agree with you. There's probably a good argument to be made that he's a country rapper. Didn't really include him in last week's country rap, even though he actually does do some duets with, like, honest-to-God country artists like Tim McGraw. So, there you go. Uh, his crew, the St. Lunatics, they become really popular in the pop rap scene. If you go over one slide, you will see him from his 2002 release, Nellyville. Uh, that is a music video for Dilemma, which he does with uh, Kelly Rowland from Destiny's Child. Uh, his 2002 album, Nellyville, really solidifies him as a rap mainstay, uh, particularly popular commercially. He's very strong in the pop cap pop rap world, I should say. Uh, there's a point where Jay-Z says in a song that the only people moving units, basically selling anything, Jay-Z says is M, Pimp, Juice, and Us, which literally says there's only, basically if I were to translate Jay-Z, there are only three people making money in rap right now, Eminem, Nelly, and myself, Jay-Z. And in a way, Jay-Z is not wrong. Nelly is incredibly popular. Uh, for instance, the songs Hot In Here and Dilemma, they are total anthems. They go number one forever. Makes him all the money. He does songs with NSYNC. He, does, uh, he performs at the Super Bowl twice, actually. He even wins a beef with KRS-One simply due to sales. Um, KRS-One is a much older school rapper who's basically like, Hey, Nelly, you're, you're not real hip-hop. You kind of suck. And then Nelly's like, shut up. I'm making a lot more money than you are, and I'm at the Super Bowl, so shut up. Uh, Nelly's song number one is pretty much a diss track towards KRS-One. And pretty much Nelly is said to have won the battle simply because he sells more. And I cannot iterate how strongly Nelly was pretty much the biggest rapper in the world from like 2000 to 2004, 2005 or so. And a lot of his popularity, and I mean a lot, I even capitalized the word lot in this, a lot of his popularity comes from women. Uh, Nelly's a pretty attractive guy. Uh, his songs about loving and sex are pretty reciprocating and the like. You know, he's talking about sex as though it's like a mutually beneficial uh, experience. And there's no doubt that a lot of Nelly's fans are women who like him because of this demeanor. Um, you know, if, you, know you see him in Dilemma, for instance. You know, he's talking about like, yo, there's this girl that I, I have a thing for, but she's married. And, I, you know, she's got a man and a son, though. So I don't know. It's just kind of like I got a romancer type of thing. I also love the, the Dilemma music video because at one point, Kelly Rowland texts her dude on an Excel spreadsheet, and then she gets mad whenever he doesn't respond. I'm like, come on, girl, you're texting him on a spreadsheet. What do you expect? But whatever. The 2002s were a very different time period. And this is really what makes Tip Drill all the more baffling. If you go over one slide, in 2003, Nelly releases an album of remixes. It's called The Dirty Versions. Uh, the Dirty Versions, that's what he calls it. It's, that's not really controversial. Now, it does include a remix of his song, E.I., which came from Country Grammar, so a song that's a couple years old at this point. Uh, this, this new song is called Tip Drill, and, and I should iterate this. The, the song itself is actually not all that out of line. Uh, sure, Nelly talks about how it's a woman's posterior, not her face, which is the reason why she's popular. Uh, but there's also a verse from a woman which says basically, uh, you know, the guy's a tip drill because he's spending money on her because of how interested he's, he is in sex. This idea that basically, like, you know, my body's got you blind, you know, you're, you're my pawn, 
by you doing this. It, it's not. It, it's kidding. It's seemingly a good fun. It, it's it's you know not at all in contrast to his image, which like I said is a bit sexual. I mean, he had women in this music video before, but they're not really over the top or exceptionally dirty in comparison to other artists. I mean, Nelly is very much seen as somebody who's popular with the ladies. His lady anthems. Sorry, speaking chair. And even Tip Drill, even the song Tip Drill, is not especially over-the-top dirty. What is controversial is the music video, which is released in 2004, seemingly only for one thing, over one slide, that is BET Uncut. Let's talk about BET Uncut, because the fact this exists is the weirdest thing we got. Okay, I need you to remember, this is like the year 2004, alright? There is no YouTube. There is no YouTube. It just kind of existed, all right? It just kind of existed. It, there's no, like, consistent way to get things online. Uh, you know, the Internet definitely exists, but, like, videos are, are very hard to get. Not everybody has high-speed Internet. Uh, Wi-Fi doesn't exist at this point. And so BET Uncut is a, you know, BET, like MTV, showed a lot of music videos. Oftentimes in this time period, the only place to watch music videos is on MTV or BET, particularly rap music videos. So the only way you watch it, you know, there's some online, but the, the quality was usually pretty bad because you're dealing with a dial-up modem. And BET Uncut is a, is a block of music videos that is almost intentionally designed to be very hard to find. Why do I say it's almost intentionally, you know, hard to find? Okay, it starts at 2 o'clock in the morning, like 2 o'clock central time. They don't advertise this. Like, this is not advertised at all on BET. Like, it's not during, you know, their, their prime time or during their, you know, 106 and Park. Like, hey, stay up late, like super late for uncut. <laughs> Two o'clock in the morning, not advertised. You know, generally most cable channels are showing, like, infomercials at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I, I should mention this is not completely unheard of during the 90s and 2000s. That's super late at night. Uh, cable channels might get a little bit more risque. Uh, that is something you might see on even on basic cable channels uh, like USA's Up All Night. That's that was an example of one where they might show it's not pornography by any stretch of the imagination, but they might uncensor some stuff. Uh, generally, not body parts, but like language was a big one. So basically, what BET Uncut has is uncensored music videos from rappers, uncensored in the sense that they said the curse words. When we say BET Uncut, they say the curse words. That's the big thing that's, that's talked about. Yes, there are a few that show a bit more skin, but considering that music videos wouldn't get played on MTV or BET with nudity, uh, most artists and labels would only make one music video, and it's not going to have nudity, if that makes sense. Like, they're not going to make two completely different music videos, one that's like racier than the other. Uh, bikinis, yes, there's tons of women in bikinis in rap music videos, or music videos in general, we talked about that. Uh, nudity, never. You don't have nudity or anything just, like, overly sexual in these music videos. And as I mentioned, BET Uncut was primarily saying it's going to be, you know, uncensored lyrics. You see the disclaimer before, of, you know, it contains material which some viewers may find objectionable or inappropriate for viewing for children under the age of 17, viewer discretion is advised. Uh, they're showing posteriors in that shot. There was never posteriors. It was mainly just cursing. Now, how Nelly found out about this, I have no idea. I really don't. Um, I only inadvertently discovered it due to one night in college I had insomnia. Okay, insomnia is a lie. I was playing World of Warcraft, 
I was playing World of Warcraft. I was in college. I was somewhat nerdy. Whatever. You will probably figure that one out. And uh, I had BET on because I liked watching rap music videos. And all of a sudden, it's like 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm doing God knows what on World of Warcraft. And all of a sudden, they're like, hey, BET Uncut. I'm like, okay, what's what's this thing? It's 2 o'clock in the morning, and BET is showing something. Oh, I should also mention, it's only on the weekend. They only do this, like, on Friday and Saturday night. They don't even do it on Sunday, because Sunday on BET is all church stuff. But uh, Friday night, Saturday night, at 2 o'clock in the morning, they will have these uncensored music videos. And I watched it for a little while, um... I stopped because they kept showing the same videos. Like, it was an hour-long show that pretty much had the same music videos every week. I wasn't that interested. I mean, I knew the songs, but it's like, if I want to hear the uncensored song, I already had the CD. And a lot of times I didn't really care for these music videos. Not because they were... They weren't dirty, like, in the in the ladies' posterior sense. It wasn't like they were, like, anything more than a regular rap music video, if that makes sense. So, you know, I was kind of an Ellie fan at the time, though, and I was very surprised when a song I had never heard of somehow got announced on the show. And when I first saw this, I'll admit, I, I saw the Tip Drill music video, and after watching it, I was like, okay, there's no way this is a new music video. This had to have been a Nelly video from, like, before he was famous, because there's no way they would make this nowadays. Like, I recognized that it was EI, but I was like, maybe this is the original version of EI. Um, there's no way that he would make this nowadays. This has to be from way before like it's not a very high cost music video like you could tell the production values are not that high looks like it was like shot on a basic camcorder uh the video itself well it is what it is uh you cannot find this on youtube i'm not going to ask you to watch this one because this one goes really far uh, the video goes way further than any of Nelly's other music videos, and even a lot more than quote-unquote dirty rappers. I should iterate, Nelly was not known as a dirty rapper. He was known as, like, a pop rapper. He was known as, like, the rapper that the ladies like because he was attractive and, like, white kids like myself listened to. Like, you could rap along with Nelly because his words were easy to understand he had a funny accent. Uh, the video, it's pretty much a house party. Uh, it's pretty much a house party. Uh, it... I think I have a shot from the music video at the beginning of the Tip Drill thing. That's probably the cleanest shot I could find of the Tip Drill music video. Uh, this video shows, like, women gyrating, uh, simulating sex. There's frontal nudity in this one, actually. And a bunch of stuff which run pretty much contrary to everything Nelly had done before. Like, everything Nelly had done before. It's pretty much pornography. Like, it's nudity. There's nudity, there's simulated sex of women... Uh, the most infamous scene, however, is at the end, where Nelly swipes her credit card between a woman's hindquarters, and she promptly starts twerking her behind. That is probably the most infamous scene from an already infamous music video that I, I've not searched for it in years, but I do remember the final scene where basically he takes a credit card and just kind of swipes it between her, 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 her behind cheeks, if you will, and as soon as he swipes it, she starts jiggling around. It was seen as a little too on the nose, uh, seen as, you know, too far, just the idea that, you know, this is total objectification, as they're saying that a woman's behind was like an ATM machine or something. Uh, the outcry was immediate. Uh, immediate, I really don't know what he was thinking. We could talk about this in class, like, what is what what was his mindset of this? I mean, yeesh, I don't know. Uh, there is immediate protest about this. Probably the biggest protest, if you go to one side, is at Spelman College. 
Uh, Spelman is an all-women HBCU in Atlanta. Um, it's an HBCU, historically black college or university. All women, you know, Spelman ladies are well known for being, you know, very educated, refined, um, you know, strong, empowered black women. And Nellie was actually going to go there for a charity drive. Um, it was called Just Us for Jackie. Uh, it was a blood, bone marrow drive for his sister. Nellie had a sister by the name of Jackie who had leukemia. And basically he's trying to do a bone marrow drive to promote awareness of like, you know, leukemia, how it affects African-American women, and also possibly to find a, um, a match for her. Possibly to find a match. I should mention that Nellie's sister actually ultimately died of leukemia. She actually ultimately died of leukemia. But Nellie's planning to do this right after the tip drill video came out, and the outcry from Spellman was immediate. Uh, the ladies of Spellman protest very strongly, like incredibly strongly. Uh, Nellie ultimately cancels the drive. Um, he, you know, he says, okay, I can do this. You know, this is not about my music video. This is about, you know, women empowerment, you know, leukemia. It's for my sister. Uh, this is hailed as, like, the worst slash most misogynic music video ever. Um, really hurts Nelly's career, I would say. Nelly's career is very much hurt by the outcry of this music video. He does come out with a few more albums after this. He's nowhere quite as big as he was beforehand. Uh, it seemed that had Nelly had abandoned black women by this video, and then black women abandoned Nelly, who had been actually his biggest audience base for quite a while. Uh, it, it, I, I think part of the outcry just is, like, who it's coming from, if that makes sense. Like, this is a music video from somebody they didn't really expect. Like, if this had come from, like, I don't know, Luther Campbell and the Two Live Crew, that was expected. This was not expected from somebody like Nelly. And that's where we're going to kind of end it. If you go over one more to conclusion... Uh, Rappers like Nicki Minaj, Cardi B, Megan Thee Stallion. Uh, it's kind of interesting that uh, that WAP song just came out this year. Um, kind of bringing up some of the controversy, talking about this. They've kind of taken up the role of modern female rapper in this idea that they're merging, pushing sexuality with their rapping. I know there are plenty of other lady rappers. I'd like you all to talk about these like newer lady rappers that aren't doing this sort of shtick. Uh, but uh, the thing I want you to think about is like, is this empowering? Like, yeah, sex exists. Uh, women's bodies are desired, but what's the line between empowerment and degradation? You know, what separates somebody like uh, Kiara Steffens from others? Is, is a song like WAP, is that a good or a bad thing for women? Like, I want you to talk about this. It's the fact that, like, you know, hip hop allows for expression and yeah, I mean, sex is a part of people's being. That's not really under question, but is it beneficial? Is it empowering? You know? That's what I want you to think about. Uh, so with that, this is Dr. Tully for History 304, uh, talking about the ladies of hip-hop and just kind of this... Is it empowering or is it not empowering? I, I look forward to your discussions on this. Alright, later. <laughs>